Hi, I'm Dubba. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, if you're looking for a line of work that brings together art and science, the hands-on craft of the maker and the intellectual insight of the physicist, you want it to be glamorous, but you also want to get your hands dirty. You want to create exquisite objects, but then smash them, blow them up or set them on fire. Ian Hunter has the job you're after. He's an award-winning special effects supervisor. He makes miniatures and models for, well, let me name a few movies you might have heard of. The Abyss, Blade Runner, Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands, Alien Resurrection, Godzilla, X-Files, Pitch Black, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe, X-Men The Last Stand, Bad Boys 2, Spider-Man 3, Die Hard 4, Fast and Furious 5, Night at the Museum, I Am Legend, The Incredible Hulk, Dark Knight, Watchmen, Green Lantern, Inception, Interstellar, First Man, And that's just the tip of the iceberg of his 70 or so Hollywood films to date. 16 Oscar nominations, two wins. I was lucky enough to sit down with Ian in a little chapel in Scotland, where our story kind of begins. Here's Ian Hunter. So Ian, you make models for movies. That's got to start somewhere. Tell me about... Your first models. Mm, yeah. So I uh, had a father who's Scottish and Troon, and he was an artist and moved to the States and uh, um, had uh, a family. Mm-hmm. I have two brothers. I'm the baby of the family. I'm like over six foot four, but, you know, there I am, baby of the family. Um, anyway, um, he encouraged us to be creative and he encouraged us to draw and paint and everything like this. But the other thing I think he did was he gave us model kits, and I think that was to get us out of his hair, so okay. to speak. So uh, as the younger you one... Huh? Something to keep you occupied. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but, but, you know, models are great for that, for someone with a creative mind. You've got all these parts, pieces, and you have a goal, which is to put them together and create this finished product. And, uh, and then so in your head and your imagination, you're flying a Spitfire, or you're flying a Measuresmith or whatever... And, but you've got all the pieces in front of you. So to get to that point where you let your imagination sort of run wild, you've got to get it built. And uh, so that, for me, was a very early part of my development to see models and see the goal, which was to get them completed and see all the parts. And funny enough, uh, in visual effects, uh, there's a very similar um, method in terms of creating visual effects, which is you have this goal, which is the final product, and now you te- you have to take it apart. You have to reverse the process, mm-hmm. make it into its pieces. Once you've made the pieces, um, you then go forward again and reassemble them. But you've got that goal in mind, which is going to be the fi- final product. And uh, funny enough, you know, starting out as a child building models, never thought that I would ever be able to use that uh, skill set. Uh, well, it's a really a interesting skill set because it's not just a creative thing or an artistic thing. It's also an incredibly technical thing as well. Mm-hmm. And and you seem to bring those worlds together really clearly. Which leads do you think? Uh, the creative is the lead, but the creative is um, a wandering child without the technical. And what's been so great for me is... Uh, I realized that I had the ability to sort of take the bigger picture and see the broader world view of something like a visual effect sequence. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then by decimating it into smaller pieces, I could find the right people that had the skills to apply them to the particular parts. 
you know, so I've got craftsmen who are great at uh, sculpting or fabricating uh, pieces. I've got engineers who are brilliant, who technically can build something that can work reliably and tough and blow up and do all these other things. And uh, very few of them, though, I think, have the ability to sort of look at the overall picture and be able to fit it all together. But that's okay, because their specific skill set and apply and then me having the ability to see where they fit into that puzzle mm-hmm. and uh, and create that team. So you have the overview and yeah. how not just how all the parts of the of the miniature fit together, but how all the parts of the team that make the miniature fit mm-hmm. together as well. And it's funny how you can get a team going and the trick is to find the personalities and not only have the skill set but have the ability to work together and uh, and have that common goal in mind mm-hmm. and if you can inspire them and in- explain to them what they're striving for then they keep going in that direction if you keep information from them they feel isolated they don't feel like they're being uh, artists who are contributing to that greater product so I've also found that over the years so you need to uh, be inclusive and make them feel part of the team because they'll give you much more effort uh, if they feel like they're being appreciated as artists, even though they're doing technical things. But every, you know, a welder is an amazing artist if they're uh, concentrating on doing the perfect weld and doing the, the perfect metal fabrication. So uh, encouraging technicians, encouraging artists, and encouraging craftsmen uh, to apply themselves. Um, you get tenfold uh, the um, results mm-hmm. versus isolating them and and saying you don't need to know any of this. You don't need to know any of this stuff. You just need to do your little part of the job. They want to know what it is that they're working on. They want to be, contribute. They want to feel. You know, the, the the analogy is it's funny. We're in a, a uh, for those listening, we're in a church and uh, and there's always the old story about the two bricklayers. You know that story where the man walks across and there's two guys laying bricks and uh first guy is laying bricks and the man asks what are you doing and the guy says uh, i'm laying bricks and he goes to the second man and the second man's got a huge smile on his face and he's very happy with what he's doing and he says what are you doing and he says i'm building a cathedral right yeah it's the same job but knowing that this is ultimately going to be you're going to be part of a, of a greater whole mm-hmm. uh makes a huge difference it also helps if you know what you're working towards i guess yes. yeah yeah so in terms of of uh where you end up i mean not i mean lots of people when they're kids they build models and and their father sends them off with kit sets to make messerschmitts they don't all end up blowing things up for christopher nolan so <laughs> what is the path <laughs> that that takes you there uh i didn't think it would go that way um i always wanted to work in films, I always loved films, I always, of course, uh, was attracted to special effects right off the bat. A uh, huge fan, my brothers and I, and my father even, of, uh, of Ray Harryhausen, who is sort of the penta-ultimate uh, special effects practitioner. But I was also very appreciative of a guy named Albert Whitlock, who is lesser known, uh, who worked on Hitchcock movies and things. He was a matte painter. Uh-huh. And so while... Harryhausen worked in fantasy. Um, Whitlock worked in dramas. Okay. And so his work was always hidden. It was always part of the narrative, part of the storytelling. And uh, and when I found out that, you know, what he did is matte painting or he'd build little models, he, he worked on the movie The Hindenburg and he, you know, shot The Hindenburg once in a while. Um, to see his work and realize what he was doing, extending the storytelling, uh, also inspired me. But... 
uh, you know, that's me as a, as a kid. I get out. I, for some reason, think that I can go into aerospace. And so I have the, you know, the technical um, So was this draw. engineering studies? Or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And unfortunately, uh, I ended up um, sort of dropping out and not pursuing uh, the aerospace uh, because I was told that, um, well, you're not going to build airplanes, you know. And I was like, but that's what I want to do. I want to get my hands dirty. And so I uh, sort of got disillusioned with the aerospace part, uh, dropped out, um, got a job uh, building uh, uh, plastic tanks for soaking um, circuit boards in acid. Okay. So I'm working with plastics and chemicals. Awful, awful job. Can't stand it. Got to get out of it. So I actually uh, saw an advert for model builder. I thought, well, I used to build models as a kid. I still build models. I've done a little bit of work. I've got some pictures of it. I'm going to apply for this job. It's got to be better than working in plastics and chemicals, which I'm doing now. I go interview, fantastic, start Monday. I'm like, oh my God, they must be really impressed with me. And I start working and there's two other people working with me, building models for a movie. I'm so happy. And there's a girl next to me and a guy next to me. And I say, I'm Ian Hunter, I'm a model maker, and what do you do? And the woman says, well, I'm a student at CalArts, which is the art school in California. I said, oh, okay, well, you know, you're an art student, that's great, you're building models, but I'm building models too. And then I look at the guy next to me and I say, I'm Ian Hunter, I'm a model maker, what do you do? And he says, I am Dimitri, I am a ballet artist, and I just got here from Russia. I'm like, oh, they're hiring literally anyone off the street to do this work. So, <laughs> so it was a little dis- disillusioned with whole model making. But it turns out I'm pretty good at it. And, uh, and that movie was The Abyss. It was the very first movie that I sort of professionally worked on. Wow, uh, and that's, that's legendary for visual effects yeah. as well. So it's, uh, and it's, I think it still holds up very well today. And it was a great movie because it combined what we call analog effects, you know, practical uh, miniatures and things like that. But it also had one of the very first uh, digital Creations, which was uh, the water tentacle that comes through, yeah, and uh, and was very impressive. So, um, a, a nice sort of uh, initiation to be able to work on a James Cameron film that was respected so well for a visual effects. Absolutely. And so, just for clarity, if we're talking about visual effects or we're talking about special effects, mm-hmm. what, what's what's the difference? How are these things defined? Um, special effects uh, primarily relates to actual practical effects that are happening on set. So if you're flipping a car, if there's rain outside the door, if the fire's going on and there's actors involved and you see that, that's special effects. Mm -hmm. Visual effects is a bit broader term. These days it means normally 98, 99% of the time it means digital effects. Presumably that number is getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So so what I do, which is very niche, is uh, miniatures. Uh, which is still a visual effect because it's not something you do live on set. Um, it's you know you're building something smaller than full size, so therefore it's no it's it's an illusion. It's a visual effect again mm-hmm. uh, that you're trying to make people believe what you're seeing is real, but in fact it's not. But it also involves practical or special effects in that we have to pull it, we have to blow it up, we have to do all those things. So we take all the di- disciplines that were in practical effects, special effects, which is the live real stuff and apply it to the miniatures. And then often what we've shot then goes into visual effects where it's combined with the live action combined with uh, digital backgrounds, et cetera. Right. So um, I think the best work is a hybrid uh, when, when filmmakers have the, you know, a full toolbox of both 
special effects and visual effects available to them and can pick and choose and combine them together to create the best illusion. Because I'll, I'll often say, no, you should do that digitally or you should do that as a matte painting. You should put, you know, I'll, I'll push people that direction when I think creatively and technically that's a better solution. But I'll also advocate shooting it for real if possible because real is real. Right. Does it, to what extent does that matter anymore? Um, you know, the thing is when you're dealing with, I would say, the superhero movies where you're dealing with, or um, Transformers, where you're dealing with the suspension of disbelief, you know you're in a fantasy world, you know these people really can't fly, they're not really turning into green giants, but you're accepting them anyway, yeah. then at that point, um, I think uh, digital animation and all these other things that we're doing in that world are completely acceptable and completely um, you know, something I can I can watch the movie and enjoy it. I know it's a, an effect, but I'm fine with it. Yeah. And it's getting better. You know, the, the, the simulations of people and skin and the believability that you're looking at a, a real character that could, could not exist in the real world. Uh, I buy it. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Where it becomes, I think, different is when you're doing a drama, which is supposed to be set in the real world. And if a digital effect is not perfect in a drama which is supposed to be uh, realistic it takes you out of the storytelling it, it breaks right. that uh, fourth wall and you're like suddenly realizing subconsciously you're not looking at reality so it's 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 a higher bar i think on a drama to um to create effects either practically or digitally that don't take you out of the story Right. To be clear, when you say miniature, the first thing mm -hmm. in my mind goes to th is something the size of this coffee cup. Ah. But uh, when you when you say miniature, you mean something usually quite more substantial than that. Yeah. For me, miniature means less than full size. Right. And uh, and um, uh, Weta, who did the Lord of the Rings movies, uh, when they filmed those, they built some models and they built these miniatures that were you know larger than a, than something that you could fit on a tabletop. These these miniatures filled spaces uh, in stages, and so they were, you know, 30 feet across and 16 feet tall, things like that. And they started calling them bigatures. Okay. Like, oh my God, they're so huge, they're bigatures. Yeah. I'm like, no, it's still a miniature if it's less than full size. And um, and I actually worked on the movie uh, Waterworld. Right. And uh, and we built the Exxon Valdez as a miniature in eighth scale. So even though it's a miniature, because it's based on this giant. Uh, uh, oil tanker, uh -huh. the miniature was 108 feet long and could be seen from space. Yeah. So, so bigger than this coffee cup. Bigger than this coffee cup, yeah. yeah. So, so, so what we're doing uh, is, even though it's smaller than full size, we still have to build it large enough to do the effect it has to do. Right. Uh, if it's involved in water, it needs to be big. If it's going to burn or blow up, it needs to be big enough for the physics to still work. Because um, that's, a, that's a really interesting aspect of this, because there's a lot of physics mm -hmm. in, in what's involved, particularly when you start getting into explosions and uh, trajectories and, and all those sorts of things. Does the scale, you know, to what extent does the scale matter at, at that point, whether it's 8th scale or 6th scale or 16th or whatever it might be? Well, the smaller you get in scale, the higher frame rate you have to go in order to um, create the illusion of mass and, and gravity. Okay. And um, basically, what, my analogy is this: If you were standing there and you had a tennis ball on your in your outstretched arm, you dropped it, and if you're a normal sized person, that's about five feet in the air, and it's going to take maybe half a second to hit the ground. Mm -hmm. Okay, everyone knows that subconsciously. 
that's a person dropping a tennis ball. But if I'm supposed to be a giant 50 feet tall and I drop that tennis ball, which is like a person or something, mm-hmm. and it hits the ground a half a second later, well, yeah, I know they know I'm not 50 Gravity feet tall. Like Gravity's, yeah, yeah, it's like it should be slowed down. It should take longer for that to okay. hit the ground. So you need to speed up the camera, speed up the camera right. to create the illusion of uh, mass by slowing down the action. And um, the bigger the scale, the cl- of course, the f- slower you can get the camera to go and still create the illusion of mass. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is an issue, which is especially with water, is the size of water droplets. Uh, right. Water has a certain uh, uh, surface tension, and it's really hard to, like, change that. You know, use a different material, hit it with air. You can do some sort of some tricks to break that apart, but again, subconsciously, a person looks at that, and if it's if the drops are too big, they know they're looking at something that's not full size. Uh-huh. So, in a, in the case of of water work, we tend to build the miniatures much larger. Um, um, and then, when you start getting into fire, you can get away with a little bit smaller. When you start blowing things up, because you're adding force, you're adding. Um, uh, the explosive energy is actually moving things at a greater rate than would happen with gravity, you can actually start getting smaller in scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as a, for instance, we did a movie called Godzilla where we had to blow up the Chrysler building, and uh, that was 24th scale. So you know, a person would be about three inches tall, um, but we were able to build that model, which was still 16 feet tall, um, but we were using pyrotechnics to blow it up, and it looks correct in scale because we were shooting at the right frame rate and the explosives were the correct size and they looked slowed down because we were shooting at the frame rate. So it's all dependent on the physics. It's all dependent on what the function is going to be and, uh, and then experience. One of the things that uh, for me really communicates the mass and the scale of something that has been made smaller but is, is designed to look big is the sound and the music and, and those sorts of things. How closely do you work with that? Um, interestingly, I don't get to work with the sound department very much. Um, I, I would hope that they are looking at something that's uh, convincing them that they're looking at something real, so they'll apply their skills to that. I do w- work with the editors quite a bit mm-hmm. because um, editors sometimes have a tendency to look at visual effects as sort of this redheaded stepchild part of the industry, and so they just want to sort of cut this thing in, and they don't realize that it's, no, it's part of your it's part of your film. It's part of the storytelling. So pick the right part of the scene and pick the right part of the shot that works and tells the story. Uh, so I tend to shoot things longer than necessary to give them the flexibility to find the, the sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, so editors are more important. Um, but here's a, here's a funny story. So I worked on a Disney movie, and um, uh, one of the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie, and uh, we shot this miniature um wagon and it's supposed to be johnny depp is pulling this wagon through and they never got the shot so we shot this wagon it's on fire but we built it in quarter scale so the fire held up and um we got it done and they went to editorial and the supervisor said okay did you cut in the the miniature shot yet and the editor said oh no no we found we found a live action shot we put that in instead and then the supervisor looked and said oh no no that's the miniature shot so the editors didn't even realize that they uh-huh. were getting a special effects shot. We had done a good enough job to fool them. If we fool them, 
then we've done our work. That's done quite our work. convincing. And, and the list of films that you've worked on is, is, as far as visual effects go, is pretty substantial and pretty impressive. I mean, uh, obviously Inception, uh, Batman films, Christopher Nolan ones, um, and uh, now you have an Oscar. Oh, yes. You want to tell me a little bit about that? Um, I have two Oscars, actually. Um, so I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I know this. Um, so, yeah, I... Uh, Getting an Oscar to me is is Richard Branson's definition of luck, which is Branson was asked, you know, did, did you feel lucky being a billionaire or whatever, whatever he's worth these days? And, uh, and he said, well, luck to him was when uh, perseverance meets opportunity. Uh-huh. So I've been in this business for a long time. Uh, I've always strived to do a good job. You know, I don't want to sh- cheat people on what, they're, what I'm providing them. Uh, I'm an audience member, so I want to look at my work as an audience member and, and do a good job mm-hmm. be impressed by it. So I've been very fortunate over the years to work with some good directors and great directors and Christopher Nolan's one of them. And by maintaining that quality of work, you start to move up and you can start to get noticed for what you've done. And it culminated in uh, the work for interstellar yeah. uh, where we got the visual effects uh, Academy award for that along with the other three supervisors so that was great, but that to me that was like okay, well this is this is because we've all worked towards the same goal, which is to do good quality work, and we've maintained that quality throughout the years, and now we're being recognized for it. And then very quickly on the heels of that, I worked on uh, First Man, and First Man again was another film uh, that received the Visual Effects Academy Award, and I got one of those too. Uh, so now I've got two for doing space movies. I don't want to be typecast, but uh, both instances, uh, which which was good, was uh, we were working with uh, great directors who had visions and who could communicate those visions to their crews mm-hmm. and who had that respect. So I think it's just this convergence. Christopher Nolan's made good movies. I happen to work on some of them. Uh, Damien Chazelle's made good movies. I work on his last one. Um, it's, you know, they're... they're Brilliant movies, are, in my opinion, but you know they're brilliant movies, they're good movies, and uh, and these guys encourage good artists to do good work, and I think that's just uh, people finally recognize that. What's really interesting to me is the difference of approach of those, specifically those two films in space. One of them being shot uh, against a black background, mm-hmm. and one of them being shot against this incredibly huge screen that uh, that you'd, you'd built, I guess, to, to sort of provide the the realistic uh, reflections and so on? Yeah, so Interstellar actually, um, there were projectors. We used uh, digital projectors on front screen material for outside the windows of the spaceships. Okay. So whenever you were looking through the windows and the actors were there, they were actually looking at space being generated there. So uh, Interstellar also is a film that um, there's only one green screen shot in the whole film. The rest of it was either done in camera as much as possible or in the case of our spe- spaceships, we shot against black, Mm -hmm. and then used um, digital rotoscoping abilities to isolate the models and put the space backgrounds in. Uh, But that kept the the images very pure, and uh, we didn't get spill and all these other things. So it was worth the effort because uh, the purity of the images that were being created. In the case of First Man, uh, you know, it was only a few years difference between uh, Interstellar and First Man, but by then, technology had uh, advanced enough that we now could take the LED screens and create the giant wall of LED screens that mm-hmm. was 60 foot by 30 foot tall, 60 foot wide, 
that we could put the spaceships against. Uh, and that was used primarily for the full-size uh, mock-ups and cockpits. So again, you're looking out the window and you're seeing the images and uh, the actors are able to, to react to it. We were doing one take where they were shooting the landing of the moon mm-hmm. and, uh, and Ryan Gosling's looking out the window and the camera operator was like, what's he looking at? And was able to pan over and look out the window also. Mm-hmm. So having the images there informs the actors, informs the performances, but also informs the um, operation of the camera operator and everybody else. Just having that image there as opposed to just having a green screen and you know filling it in uh, after the last minute. So um, it's very important. It, it's, it really affected the, the shoot. The trick uh, doing that is if you just have a green screen, you can add it in post. Yeah. When you have that LED screen there and you have to have it in camera, that means you have to create the effects before photography starts. Of course. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So that was a, th- it was a very front-end loaded movie. Um, to uh, to do that, and it only would have worked because Damien was very prepared, and he had storyboards and um, created this you know environment, this scenario that he could shoot those uh, backgrounds mm-hmm. uh, in camera as much as possible. Uh, funny enough, most of the miniature work we did on that, we also shot against black, very much like we did in Interstellar, and then um, uh, Dineg, who also did the work on Interstellar. Uh, we removed any of the model movers and, and any of the rigging that showed and just put it against a, a pure black background. Uh, interestingly enough, because we we're trying to be very realistic in First Man, uh, if you look at the actual footage that was uh, we were matching, oftentimes if you're facing the sun in space, you see no stars because they're blown out by sure. the sunlight. So sometimes we would have stars in the backgrounds but oftentimes we would just be in the black void which would be very realistic for the photography uh-huh. okay and i guess that your career particularly with the kinds of films that you've uh, ended up working on and i'm thinking here of, of uh, the batman films for instance you spend months making something and then see it destroyed in seconds and and then i guess start all over again what's that like um, you know, Batman has been an interesting world for me because I actually worked on Batman Returns, which was uh, the Tim Burton uh, sequel. Oh, really? Okay. And then, uh, like, oh, that's great. You know, and at the time it wasn't as well received. Now it's sort of considered the citizen, you know, or certainly the better. The citizen kind of Batman. Yeah, Batman. Batman going to say? Yeah. And then, uh, and like, oh, that's great. And then I got to work on Batman and Robin, which is not the Citizen Kane of Batman movies. Sure. Um and, uh, and we were proud of the work, but man, the movie was, was not, uh, we called it Batman on Ice, which was not uh, very good. Um, so it's like, ah, uh, down, down low. And then uh, Christopher Nolan comes along and does Dark Knight, and we get asked to work on that and Dark Knight Rises. And so we sort of got redeemed from the uh, Batman and Robin world. And uh, I was told by the supervisor on Dark Knight that we were never to mention Batman or Robin, and that was verboten. So, right, you know, sure. d- d- just wanted to forget about that. Um, but here's the funny thing about what we do. I mean, we're, we're storytellers. We're creating these images that are going to, you know, convey something that's happening, a dis- destruction or, uh, you know, some sort of pivotal moment in the mm-hmm. story. And so we're building these models, but these models are sort of like better lack of a better term they're 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 part of a uh a performance art piece if you will yeah uh they're created to be destroyed uh we're they're creating them specifically to put them into this scenario and into this event and we're capturing that 
phenomenon with cameras. And so we want to see how it blows up and so we guess so destroys. The film is the cathedral and not the miniature. Yeah. 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 And that's the difference too, is I've I've worked with people who are like um, obsessed with the model and think that, you know, and like don't touch my precious model and like, no, you don't understand. It's it's a means to an end. Um, my mentor, a guy named Mark Stetson, who was a supervisor who uh, I sort of worked with for many years, taught me that very early on. He says the model is is just what that's we, how you get there. That's how we get there. Yeah. It's what we put on on the screen uh, that's going to be the lasting piece. And so, if we build the fortress for Inception, yeah. and it's supposed to be destroyed, and we don't do it, well, then it's it's not it, it, karma has not been fulfilled. It's sure. it's now this sad thing that like wants to be. Uh, destroyed and, and reborn, and if we don't destroy it, it's 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 meaningless. That's an incredibly impressive uh, yeah. construction. That is it. One of the things that you point to go, I did that. That was me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was the for New Deal Studios, which is our company. It was the largest model we built. It was forty-seven foot tall, huge miniature uh, mountainside, and uh, and uh, we were very involved uh, in designing the sequence in terms of how it fell apart and how it broke up, mm-hmm. and uh, working the previs so. It's satisfying to to be at the genesis of that, yeah. uh, to work out the creative aspect of it, and then do all the technical, and finally pull off the shot. Is the kid making models at uh, at a young age happy with where he's ended up? <laughs> uh, here's here's the unfortunate thing. I mentioned my father, uh, who was an artist, and he taught my brothers and I to be our own worst critics. Uh-huh. Uh, like, you know, a really true artist will always look at his work or her work and um, say, well, what could I do better? What could I have done, you know, somewhat better? So funny enough, as much as I've done done all these movies and yes, gotten awards and yes, uh, recognition and yes, the work is good and great and my people did fantastic. I often still look at the work and think, what could I have done better? What could we do to, to improve that or, you know, What's, What's your next the, opportunity to do that? Uh, <laughs> uh, another space movie, but the, but one I'm going to have a lot less uh, pressure on. Um, it's going to be a, uh, I can't say the title or talk too much about the plot, but it's going to be a, a rom-com set in space. Okay, so nice. so that is going to be like pure fun, actually, and uh, and kind of a relief to be able to just Well, hopefully something of, blows up. Oh, oh. About every five minutes, something blows up. So that'll be fun. Ian, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Cheers. That's Ian Hunter, and that's the MTF podcast. If you enjoyed that and you've heard podcasts before, so you know what to do by now subscribe, share, like, rate, and review. Maybe even go back and listen to a few earlier episodes as well while you're at it, or just tell someone you know. As you may have heard, we're in Urubro next week running AI Labs and an MTF trackathon in residence at the university there, bringing some brilliant MTFers from all around the world to invent the future of intelligent machines with humans in the loop. And if you didn't know that, then chances are that's because you're not subscribed to our newsletter. It's absolutely free, no reason not to join, and you'd be an excellent company. Pretty much everyone ever featured on this podcast are all signed up. Just go to musictechfest.net slash newsletter and I'll leave you to go and do that. Have a great week and we'll talk soon. Cheers.